Good morning. This morning's scripture comes from the book of James, chapter 2, verse 1 through 17. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you, stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Every week we're taking one of the many things that people in our culture, uh, especially in New York City, uh, are troubled by with regard to Christianity. Each week we look at one of the many things that people are most find most troubling about Christianity, and we look at it. And today, the objection or the trouble could be put like this. The Christian church has a long history of oppression. Christians, people acting in the name of Jesus Christ, have engaged in systemic economic and cultural oppression of various races, classes, and especially the poor. Now, last week, the objection about absolute truth uh, was uh, historically associated with the name of Nietzsche. But this week, the, this particular objection is historically associated with the name of Karl Marx. But you do not have to be a communist to feel the force of this argument. And the argument goes like this, that Christianity is the opium of the people. That is, it disempowers the poor. It has been an enemy of the poor over the years. Uh, and therefore... We shouldn't believe its beliefs. Christianity's history of oppression of various races and classes, and especially the poor, means that the beliefs of Christianity are not credible. We shouldn't believe them. 
what do we say to this? What do we say? I just want to warn you ahead of time that there is no, for Christians, I like to warn Christians that there's no way out of this triumphalistically. <laughs> you know, we're in a corner here. Uh, but we still have things to say, and they're in this passage of the book of James, and here's what the three things are we can learn from the book of James that address the question, address, address the problem. Number one, the passage will teach us the biblical God actually chooses the poor and the oppressed. Secondly, that anyone with a true spiritual connection to that God inevitably does the same. And thirdly, how we will learn how we can make that connection. The biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. Anyone with a true spiritual connection to that God will inevitably do the same and how we can make that connection. Okay, first. Um, in the beginning of this chapter, we see James writing to a group of Christians, and he's abrading them because they have fallen into partiality or discrimination, and they're favoring the rich or, in the, upper, or, the, or the upper classes over the poor. And at the end of the uh, introductory section, there's this amazing pa- uh, verse, verse 5, where uh, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? Has not God chosen the poor? What in the world does that mean? And, you know, at first glance, it might mean, you might say, well, what it really means is that God only saves the poor. But, you know, just a few verses earlier, for example, in James chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we'll get back to that in a minute, he says, The poor believer in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. And it's very clear, as I said, I'll get back to that in a second, that James is saying that there are both rich and poor in the church, that there are both rich and poor that have found faith, have found God, are saved. So what does it mean when it says God chooses the poor? And I think the answer is that this is nothing but a simple historical fact. Uh, Paul, for example, when he writes to the Corinthian church, says this, and he's just writing to the earliest Christians. He says, think of what you were when God called you, brethren. Not many of you were sophisticated or wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God has chosen the lowly and despised things of the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's Paul saying? Simple fact, most of the Christians... Most of the people who became Christians in the early church were people of lower socioeconomic status. And the simple fact is that has always been the case. That today, as occasionally I mentioned, but I'll mention again, today the great majority of people who name the name of Christ are living in the southern hemisphere. They're living in Latin America and Africa and Asia, and they're poor. It has always been the case What this is saying, when it says God chooses the poor, it's talking about a historic fact, and that is that the gospel is particularly empowering to the poor, and it's particularly compelling to the poor, and as a result, most of the people who embrace Christ over the years are people of lower socioeconomic status. That's what it's saying. Because the gospel is especially empowering and compelling to the poor. Let's let's break that down. 
uh, empowering, compelling. First of all, the gospel is particularly empowering to the poor. One of the great ironies of recent history, church history, is that during the 50s and the 60s, there were many clergy, both Protestant and Catholic clergy, in Latin America who saw the suffering of the poor and they ditched their Christian beliefs. They ditched Christianity, became secular people, basically. And the reason was because they bought the Marxist uh, uh, objection, and that is that Christianity was the opium of the people, that Christianity disempowered the poor. That's one of the reasons why they dropped it. And they said, you know, we care about the poor. We're in solidarity with the poor. And so they dropped their their uh, their Christianity and became secular people. And the great irony of this, and of course, the, to their great astonishment, to everybody's great astonishment, in Latin America over the last 50 or 60 years, there's been an explosion of born-again Christianity, particularly of the Pentecostal type. So much so that there are some Latin American countries that have gone from 1% or 2% to 40% born-again Protestant Christian. And uh, what do they believe? What are these people believing? What are they flocking to? They believe in the complete authority of the Bible. They believe that you're uh, saved by the blood of Christ. You have to be born again by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is coming again to uh, renew the world and put everything right. And uh, there have now been, because so much of this has spread in Latin America, there have been sociologists who have done studies of villages that have largely or even completely converted. And what they find is that Marx was absolutely wrong. The family lives, the economic lives of the poor are markedly improved. They're empowered. And why? Well, the sociological studies will tell you this, but honestly... Uh, pastors of poor uh, people have told me this, and besides that, common sense will tell you this. They, here's what they say. They said, okay, the gospel says to people, the Lord of the universe died for you and loves you. And the God of the universe puts his spirit into you and gives you spiritual gifts so that now you are his agents for reconciliation in the world. You're on a mission. And... Someday, God is going to come back and he's going to put all of this stinking world right. And every, all accounts will be squared and everything will be set right. That's what, the, that's, what, that's what the gospel tells people. And then there's the secular worldview says, you're here by accident and at best you are a highly complex biological organism. Which of those two worldviews empowers the poor? Which gives them a, a self-image of affirmation? Which, gives the, which, which imbues them with a sense of almost cosmic dignity? Hmm? The gospel empowers the poor. It has been always. In fact, one of the great ironies, and I read this in one of the, one of the chapters about this incident, many of the clergy abandoned Christianity to opt for the poor. But the great irony of the last 60 years in Latin America is the poor have opted for Christianity. We also said, however, the gospel, when it says God chooses the poor, it doesn't just mean the gospel is especially empowering to the poor, but compelling. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean the gospel as opposed to normal kinds of religion and morality. I mean the Christian gospel as opposed to religion and morality in general. is very compelling to the poor. Jesus actually says it first. It's a place where he's talking to the economic and religious leaders of his community. They're called Pharisees. And he says to them, the pimps and the prostitutes get into the kingdom of heaven before you. And it has been true ever since. How so? Okay. According to Jesus, according to the Bible, there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. There are two ways to try to get control of your life 
and take control of your life away from God. Hmm? There's two ways to be your own Savior and Lord, two ways to try to get control of your life from God. One is by breaking all the moral rules, by doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay. The other is by keeping all the moral rules so fastidiously that you say to God, you've got to bless me. You've got to take me to heaven. See? I've, you can't let just anything happen to me. And you look at other people and you look at God and you have control of your life because you are so good. One approach makes you, the, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock, rock and roll can make you an addict. The other approach probably will make you the pillar of your respectable society. Okay? But in both cases, you're rebelling against God. You are a slave to pride and self-centeredness. In two utterly different ways, you're, what are you doing? You're being your own savior and your own Lord, and you're trying to get control of your life over, uh, uh, from, away from God, and you're wreaking havoc all around you. Now, go, as Jesus said, go to the pimp and the prostitute and the drug addict, the person in the gutter, and say, you need God, you're a slave to your desires, uh, you're a spiritual failure, and you need a, a, an experience of the supernatural grace of God in your life. And you know what they're going to say? The person in the they're going to say, maybe you're right. But you go to a self-saver. You go to a high achiever. You go to a morally upright person. Okay? You go to a person who loves religion and morality, you see, because religion and morality says if you work hard and you're really good and you, you know, obey the Ten Commandments, you read the Bible and you pray, God will, you know, then God will have to take you to heaven. You go to a person like that and say, you need God. You are a, a, a slave of your self-righteousness and your desires. You need the supernatural grace of God in your life. They'll, they'll look at you and they'll say, how dare you? They might even say, I'm, I'm at the church every time the doors are open. And that's the reason why when you tell middle-class people and rich people religion, when you say, if you live very well and you, you do your best and you try to be a good person, then God will have to take you in. That makes sense. But when you tell them the gospel, when you say you are a sinner and you will never save yourself, and you are an absolute moral spiritual failure of one kind or another, they hate it. But when the poor hear it, they say hallelujah. Because the gospel is always more compelling to the people who know their own inadequacy. See, They see it more clearly. They always have. One of the great ironies in this city is you can go to you can go to these great institutions, cultural institutions, foundations, and all they care about is the poor. We're for the poor. And yet the people in the jobs, the people behind the desks, are absolutely secular people. But the actual people who push the brooms and who run the elevators, the people who are supposed to be helping, they're all shouting hallelujah on Sunday. See? Because God chooses the poor and the oppressed. Gospel Christianity is the religion of choice. It's the faith of choice of the poor, of the oppressed, of the centuries of the world. God chooses them. He delights to empower the people that the world disempowers. So that's point one. But you say, well, that's very nice, very inspiring. But, you know, that's God. We're talking about Christians here today. You know, you don't let me, you know, you know don't let me wiggle out from under this objection. And he says, you know, maybe God chooses the poor, but the church is the problem here. The reason I have trouble believing in Christianity is the church. It's Christians. It's people that name the name of Christ. Look at what they have done to races and classes over the year. But don't forget. Okay, let's keep going. Because the argument is not, 
I'm certainly not going to say, oh my goodness, the, the church doesn't have a terrible record. Of course the church has a terrible record. And you can't even just say, of course, but. You know, it, there, there, there's repentance that needs to happen. There's restitution that needs to happen. But the argument here is that because of the Christian's history of oppression, therefore you shouldn't believe the beliefs of Christianity. Does that argument hold water? Let's look at point two. And the point two of this passage, and listen, this is radical, everybody. And for the last 22 years, since the early 80s, when I realized what verse 13 was actually saying, I have struggled with it, and, I, and misery loves company. Let's see what the second, the second thing is that God chooses the poor, and anyone who really, truly has a connection to this God will inevitably do the same. Now, notice verse, the last verse in the, on the page. Faith without works is dead. Faith, if it's not accompanied by action, is not dead. Is dead. Uh, now, some people point out that that seems to be a bit of a contrast with what Paul says in Romans and Galatians. Paul says you're saved by faith in Christ, not by your works. You're saved by faith in what Jesus has done, not in what you do. Here it says faith without works is dead. But... There's no real contradiction, and of course, over the years, many people have said the two things actually fill each other out. And Martin Luther perfectly summarized both what Paul says and what James says in one sentence when he said, Christians are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. They're saved by faith alone, but not by faith which remains alone. And what he's saying here, and what, it, what James is saying, and what the Bible says, is that Concrete life changing, a particular actions, good works, good works. Good works are not a means of salvation, they're a sign of salvation. See, they're not, they're not the way to get saved, but they are a sign that you are saved. You see, your relationship with God, according to the gospel, is received, not merited. You stop trying to save yourself, and you rest in what Jesus has done. But how do you know you're in a relationship like that? How do you know you really are resting in Jesus for your salvation and you're not on a kind of pharisaical self-salvation project? How do you know? James says, actions, good works. But the thing that people have missed over the years, I mean, not everybody, but many people miss when you read that, is the kind of works James is saying is the sign that you're not a Pharisee, is the sign that you're not on a self-salvation project, is a sign that your faith is true, gospel, grace faith. What are the signs that inevitably will show up in a person who knows they're sinners saved by grace? It's caring for the poor. Look at what are these actions that he's saying you've got to have or your faith isn't real faith. Your connection with God isn't a real connection. Verses 1 to 4, you've got to care about the poor. You don't discriminate. You don't look toward the, the middle class and the rich and, 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 and discriminate against the poor. Look at verse 15 and 16. It's talking about caring for, for the physical needs of people. But the most... The most radical statement in here is verse 13, where it says, Judgment will be without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. Now, there's a play on words here, because the word mercy, uh, the Greek word that's translated mercy here, has a lexical range. You know what I mean by that? And that is to say a word can mean, uh, some, sometimes there's a narrow meaning of a word and a broad meaning. The broad meaning of the word merciful, or the Greek word that's translated merciful here, means to be kind, of course. Favorable. But there's a narrow meaning for the word mercy in the New Testament, and the narrow meaning of the word mercy is, is meeting the physical needs of the poor. So, for example, at the end of the Good Samaritan parable, 
everything the Samaritan did does for the man in the road. All the money he spends and the, and the medical care and all that is summarized under one word, the one who did mercy. Because in the Bible, mercy can have a technical meaning of caring for the poor, doing justice, giving money, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, economic development, right? Or, or for example, when the blind men hear Jesus going by and they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. They're not saying, just be nice to us. <laughs> They're saying, doing something about my physical problem. When they say, have mercy on me, it means heal me. I'm sick. To feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to, uh, to, to shelter the homeless, that's mercy. And what is verse 13 saying? What is faith without works is dead saying? It's saying, on judgment day, the signs that you are a real believer is a life of deeds of mercy poured out in service to the poor. That's what it's saying. Now you might say, how could it say that? Is it really, does that mean all the social workers are going to heaven and nobody else is? And I, no, remember what we said. These works aren't means of salvation, they're marks of salvation. They're not ways of getting saved, they're signs that you are saved, but the works that he's talking about is caring for the poor. Non-oppressive behavior, empowering the poor. That's how you know that you're not a Pharisee. That's how you know you're not on a self-salvation project. That's how you know that you really have faith that's not dead. That's real, vital, saving faith. How could that be? Well, remember this verse I, I quoted a minute ago? It's, it's right in chapter 1 where James says, The poor believer in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the rich believer should take pride in his low position. You say, that's paradoxical. No, it's, it, no, it's beautiful. It's not paradoxical. It's beautiful. Let's go back to Martin Luther for a second. Martin Luther always taught that if we were saved by our good works, you could have either one of two spiritual positions. If you're saved by obeying the Ten Commandments, if you're saved by praying, and if you're saved by, you know, imitating what the Bible says, you could have one of two positions. You could either be a sinner. You could have a low position, condemned, deserving punishment, because you're failing to live up to the standards. Or you could have a high position, Righteous, accepted by God, honored and loved, blessed. But if you're saved by grace, if you're saved not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done, then a Christian is someone who the minute you embrace Jesus Christ, you occupy both positions at once. Martin Luther said, you are simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously, in yourself, a sinner, condemned, deserving punishment, but in Christ, absolutely loved and absolutely accepted at the same time. Now, here's what James is saying. That has to, if, if you understand the gospel and you're not just on a self-salvation project, it has to transform the way in which you relate in society, your social life in being. It has to transform your social identity. And here's what he says. If you are poor and all of your life you're told you're a failure, and you become a Christian, suddenly you think about this high position you've got, that the ultimate power in the universe loves you. And that's the reason why Christianity is just, like I said, empowers the poor and is so compelling to the poor. The ultimate power in the universe loves you. So a person is poor, and the world has always said, you're a failure, you become a Christian, and now this high position transforms your identity. Okay, but James is also saying, what if you're middle class? 
What if you're rich? What if you're an achiever? What if you've really worked hard? You've gotten into good schools. You've got a good job. Hmm? Right? And the world tells you, you're great. You're good. You can be anything you want to be. You know, you keep trying. You become a Christian. Suddenly you've got this low position you've never been in before. Because the gospel says, look, you may not be like a drug addict, but you're every bit as much a rebel. You're every bit as self-centered. You're arrogant. You're self-righteous. You're making the world a mess because you're trying to keep control of your own life. You absolutely deserve condemnation. Religion and morality tells the middle-class person exactly what the world tells them. Religion and morality says, if you try hard enough, you can make it. That's what the world says. That's what religion says. But the gospel says to the middle-class person, if you're ever going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to go on welfare. If you want to have a relationship with God, you have to look at the homeless man. Look at the man on the floor. Look at the man on the floor. Look at how he smells. No resources. Absolutely broken. Nothing to offer. That's exactly how the Lord of the universe sees you spiritually, but he embraced you. And James is saying, if, if you believe the gospel, it has to transform your identity even slowly. If you continue to keep your money, if you continue to defer to other people of power, if you do not pour yourself out in deeds of mercy to the poor because your identity has been transformed by the gospel, if there at least aren't some signs that it's beginning to happen in your life, you may say you've got faith, but your faith is dead. It's not real, de- it's not real faith. It's not saving faith. It's not faith that knows you're a sinner saved by grace. It's a, it's a self-salvation project of some kind. Isn't that amazing? Because at the heart of the gospel is something that changes your identity. It's not your bank account. It's not your status. It's not your looks anymore. It's what, it's what the Father thinks of you in Jesus. It's what the Father has done for you in Jesus. It changes your identity. And if that identity is not beginning to change and show itself in your attitude toward other races, there's nobody you look down on anymore. Your attitude toward other classes. You're willing to get involved in their lives. If these changes don't happen, he says, you say you have faith, it's dead. And that's the reason why. Okay, now here, let's get to the argument. That's the reason why when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. confronted terrible systemic racism in the South, supported by the churches, the white churches, what did he say? That he said, let's get away from our Christian beliefs. Let's weaken them. Let's loosen them. Let's become more secular. Is that what he said? He said, you know, Christianity is the opium of the people. And uh, truth is relative. Everybody has to decide what is right or wrong for him or herself. He didn't say that because, you know what, if truth is relative, why would, the, why would white people have ever given up their power in the South? That's not how Martin Luther King Jr. argued. He didn't say, because of the injustice of Christians, therefore, we don't have to believe the beliefs. He says, no, what, the, what you need is truer belief, deeper belief. Get to the heart of your Christian faith. See what it really teaches. What is at the center of the Christian faith? A man who died a victim of injustice and who preaches good news to the poor. He says, the solution to the injustice of Christians is not less but more Christianity, truer Christianity, deeper Christianity. Hmm. And therefore, he says, the argument doesn't wash. doesn't mean there hasn't been a terrible record of oppression done by the church. But it's by no means any argument for the falsity of Christianity. If anything, it's an argument for getting in touch with the truth of it. 
Isn't that something? And don't you see, listen, if you say, I can't believe in Christianity because of, uh, of the way in which it's treated the poor, you don't really understand the poor. Because from the inside of poverty, the gospel looks wonderful. You don't really understand. And if you say, well, it's, a, it's an argument against the truth of Christianity, you're wrong. Ask Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're a Christian, you can't walk out of this argument. You can't deal with this argument triumphalistically, can you? Absolutely not. It just cuts us down. It knocks us down. It's the only possible way. In other words, what this passage says knocks the, Christ, the non-Christian skeptic off of his feet, but knocks the, the Christian down to his or her knees. Now, how can we make this? I mean, there's one more thing we've got to look at, just briefly, and that's this. If the God of the Bible chooses the poor and the oppressed, and anyone who really has a connection with that God inevitably does the same, how can we strengthen that connection? How can we get it? I mean, there's a lot of people, and I hope you're in this room, and you're saying, well, I believe the gospel, but I don't, I really am not living the way I guess I should be living. How do I strengthen that connection? It's all in verse 1. And it's very interesting. It says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it says, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Jesus, the glory. As be- people who see Jesus as glory, people who understand glory in terms of Jesus, will not show favoritism. Now, this word favoritism is interesting. Literally, it's a, it's a word that means to receive the face of someone. To receive the face. Literally, it means someone who is controlled by surfaces, controlled by uh, glitz, or controlled by resume, or controlled by beauty, a beautiful face, great clothes, killer resume, incredible credentials, or, or incredible connections. James says, you need to be free from being controlled by that. Well, that's not that easy, especially in a place like New York. I was, there, was a, there was an article by Guy Trebay in the uh, New York Times about a month ago when all the tents were up in Bryant Park and they had all the fashion shows. The name of the uh, article was, Look at me, look at me, please look at me. <laughs> and there's a really, really telling section. He's talking about the fact he knows a lot of models and he knows a lot of actors and the actors are so good looking and the models are so beautiful and they're so thin and they don't feel that way. And here's what he says. Models do not think they are too skinny, and actors do not find themselves handsome. Our crazy cultural obsession with the perfected surface has become so absolute that everybody ends up having to work off some obscure psychic debt. Our obsession with the perfected surface has become absolute. See, James said it's always been a problem. You're you're addicted to it. You're obsessed with it. you're, You're drawn to it. You're controlled by it, and it's, it's worse now than it's ever been. That's what, that's what Guy Trebay is saying. Well, how do, we get, how do we get control? Look at Jesus and what he did with his glory. Philippians 2 says, Jesus Christ had ultimate glory. He, had the, he was the ultimate, beautiful, glorious person. I mean, you know, you can't even look at the sun with your naked eye without going blind. You can't get near the sun without it destroying you. Yet Jesus Christ's beauty and glory was trillions and trillions infinitely greater than the beauty and the power and the radiance of the sun. But he gave it up. And he came to earth. And Isaiah says he had no beauty that we should desire him. But when he got to the cross, that was the ultimate. He was absolutely ignored. 
No honor. He was, he was, you couldn't even look upon him, the Bible says. He was, it was, it was that stomach wrenching. He lost, he was cosmically disregarded by the Father. He lost all his honor. He lost all his glory. He lost everything. Why? So that we could be clothed in it. He took our sin. He took the weight of our sin. He, he was stripped of his honor and his glory and his beauty so that we could receive it, so that we could be taken in. But then, in John chapter 12, he says, And when I am lifted up on the cross, I will attract all people to myself. And that's one of the, that's one of the most curious spots there is in the Bible, because everybody knows that on the cross, Jesus lost his beauty. He lost his glory. He lost his attraction. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53. And yet he also says that he will attract people through what he did on the cross. It's almost like he's trying to say that having lost all my beauty in order to make you beautiful, I became ugly so that you could get the only beauty that really lasts. That that is the ultimate beauty. To see someone who doesn't care about his own beauty and doesn't even care about your surface beauty but cares about you in the great divorce, there's the man who's on the outskirts of heaven and he's seeing people come out of heaven. And at one point he sees this incredibly towering, beautiful woman surrounded by boys and girls who are dancing and it's filled with light and, he, and, and he's got a guide and he asks the guide this. He says, I can only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, he said. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived on Golders Green. But she seems to have been a person of great importance, I asked. Have you not heard that fame up here and fame on earth are two quite different things? But who are all these young men and women around her? They are her sons and daughters. My, sir, she must have had a very large family. No. Every boy that met her became her son. Every girl that met her became her daughter. Wasn't that hard on her parents? <laughs> on their parents, excuse me? No. There are those who steal other children's parents, but her love was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. And few men looked on her without loving her, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but more true to their own wives. And now the radiance of her life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them all. Already there is joy enough in her little finger to waken all the dead things of the universe to life. On earth, Sarah Smith, because her beauty wasn't on the surface, nobody knew who she was. But she had Jesus' beauty, she had Jesus' glory, which is the beauty of not caring about surface beauty and the glory of self-giving. And if you see what Jesus did for you and you're moved by that, it gets you, frees you from the need, frees you from glitz, frees you from partiality, frees you from favoritism. Jesus Christ is the rich man who had the good seat, and we are the poor that were on the floor. But Jesus Christ has said, I'll sit on the floor so you can have the good seat. Look. This objection does not knock down Christianity, but it should knock us down to our knees. But when you see Jesus being stripped of all his honor so that we could have the only honor that lasts, that is a balm 
for the wounds that we have wounded ourselves with, and even a balm for the wounds that we have inflicted on each other, because we are alienated from the spirit of the one who, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty all might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who also, though rich, impoverish ourselves, that through our giving and through our generosity and through our involvement in the lives of others, uh, others might become rich. We want to follow in his footsteps. There is no way out of this uh, objection, (laughs) triumphalistically, for us as Christians. Not at all. We have to uh, uh, repent for what people have done who have named the name of Christ and what people have done because we're in the church and we have a, there's, a, there's a corporate responsibility for things that have been done in, in the name of the church. But we also see that you are the true God who empowers the poor, who loves the poor, who chooses the poor, and that we want a faithful, uh, vital connection with you through Jesus Christ that enables us to also do the same. And we ask that you would make this so. Through Jesus, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.